Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 7. Psalm number 7, as we kind of uh, move back and forth through the Psalms and portions of Psalms. We're going to read the whole Psalm today, but really I'm only going to deal with one verse in particular. One verse in particular, and uh, that's the first verse. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I love, the, look at the, the, uh, uh, the introduction to the psalm, uh, Shigowen of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of Benjaminite. Now, if you have your, if this is a pew Bible, you can look, there's a, a note, and every once in a while they have these notes at the bottom for these really strange words, because this word is only used here and in Habakkuk chapter 3. It's not used anyplace else in Scripture, and it's only transliterated doesn't mean it's translated. It just means that they've taken the English letters and spelled out the Hebrew word because they don't know what in the world it means. Because, uh, as I said, it's only used one place else. They kind of have an, an idea. And you can see it says a dithyrambic rhythm or wild, passionate song. Uh, I'm going to opt on the wild, passionate song because I don't know what a dithyrambic rhythm is. Uh, music people, can you know? Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, but, but this is one of those things. It's a ex- psalm of excitement and of passion. And something is going on here in David's life. And he, he just, he's going to write a song about it and got to talk to the Lord about it. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read Psalm 7? Our Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes. Open our eyes to your word. Open our eyes to who you are as our safety and security, as our refuge, and what we can find when we seek your face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then you see that word Selah down there. That means to take a break and to think about what was just written. David says, if there's any guilt in me, Lord, bring it down upon my head. Let him consume me. So he pleads his innocence here. Verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in thy anger. Lift up thyself against the rage of my adversaries, and arouse thyself for me. Thou hast appointed judgment. And let the assembly of the peoples encompass thee, and over them return thou on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Well, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. I love that little bit. We'll see it later. But the guy who's accusing David dug a hole 
and in a sense, and he, he himself has fallen into it. Okay, he, he, He's accusing David, and he gets caught in his own lie. Verse 16, his mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So I said we're going to mostly that first verse, although we'll touch on a couple. But, O Lord my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Our refuge is in the Lord. Now I've been reading a a book recently that I I got for Christmas from from my daughters. And it's, it's one of those real thick history books. But it's the history of Scotland. And it's written by Magnus Magnuson who's from Iceland. I don't know. But, but, uh, and I just finished covering the section on James II. James II. Now, as you know, for those who watch Jeopardy, you can't win at Jeopardy unless you know the kings of England. Okay? And you've got to know which James is Scottish and which James is English and which Henry here and Henry there. Okay? This is James II from Scotland, about the 1400s. So James was also known as Fiery Face because he had a birthmark on the left side of his face. Um, And and so the important aspect of James for for this morning is his reign marked a transition in warfare in Scotland because he had a thing for cannons. And he, he liked cannons. I mean, they were the new technology coming onto the field, and he just thought they were the coolest things. And his wife family was from Flanders, and they really liked him, so they gave him this cannon, they called the Lion, um, uh, as a present. They also gave him other cannons as well, but this this one, you'll see why this one is important. And and you remember at that time, a lord would build a castle, and the bigger the castle, and the thicker the walls, and the bigger the moat, and you were safe behind it, as long as you had uh, a source of water, and as long, you know, the enemy would come, and they would besiege the castle, as long as you had your water source, and as, as the food held out, and you could keep them off the walls, you found refuge and safety behind the walls of the castle, until artillery came along, and James II saw this, and he said, this is this is what I need. So he pulled up with his cannon, and which was large enough to, to shoot a ball of about 400 pounds, whether stone or iron, about a mile and a half. So he could be out of range of anything that the castle could do, and he would set up his cannon there, and he could fire about six shots a day. And they'd just fire away with his cannon, and those balls would hit the walls, and eventually the walls would give way, and they would crumble, and then the soldiers could go through without having to put up ladders and, and bring in other um, you know, uh, uh, machines that would, would get them over the walls. So uh, James reigned as, as uh, king of Scots from 1437 to 1460. And there he was in 1460, and he's, he's trying to get the, the English are a little bit busy doing something else. So he thinks, this is the time I can go and get some other lands that the English took from us. So he goes to Roxborough Castle. I know you're all engulfed and engrossed in, in this story. He goes to Roxborough Castle, and he sets up the lion. Okay, This is his baby. Um, and and he's, he's, he's there next to it. It's, you can almost see him like he's got his arm on it, and he's getting pictures, selfies with it, you know, like that. With his, and, and so he he says, okay, start battering the walls. So they set it off, and the cannon, the stupid thing, explodes, okay? And it kills him, 
uh, as he stood next to it. Uh, somebody who was there right, right next to it uh, said, As the king stood near a piece of artillery, his thigh bone was dug into when a piece of the gun broke in shooting, by which he was stricken to the ground and died hastily. Now, hastily, uh, yeah, oh, hopefully. Now, I understand the cannon, they didn't have a forge or a casting facility large enough to make a cannon in one piece at that time. So what they did is they took bars and they laid them out kind of in a circle and then they took hoops and round the hoops around those bars and then melted them all together. Inherently a poor design, uh, which was just going to come apart sooner or later. And that's what happened to poor James II. Now, I say this because there was safety behind the walls and, and, until the time artillery came around. Now, you know, artillery pieces, now you've got rocket-fired artillery that goes 60 miles or, um, you know, it's, it's, nothing is safe. Uh, but then they just throw those iron balls up against the wall and sooner or later those walls were going to come down. So our passage this morning talks about refuge. And specifically that God is our refuge in times of trouble. Now, two things that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, first, I think it's appropriate to deal with a topic that, in a sense, has been thrust upon us uh, by modern society and their misappropriation of a concept that is biblical. Uh, and that would be cities of refuge, or as they're popular today, sanctuary cities. That's what they're called. Uh, and secondly, we're going to look at what does it actually mean to find refuge in our Lord. Now, it was during a recent uh, Huntsville City Council meeting. I don't know, does anybody go to the city council meetings? Uh-huh, okay. Now, I just read this in the paper. Um, but there was a, a group that wanted Huntsville to be declared as a sanctuary city. And they termed it, by their definition, a city welcoming illegal refugees and immigrants. Well, those are two distinct groups. One is illegal, one is an immigrant. And I, I think Mayor Battle ended the, the conversation when he effectively said, well, we're going to follow the law. And that was the end of it. Well, the sanctuary movement has been around quite a while. I can remember back in the 80s, uh, it was big in the uh, PCUSA churches uh, around the border, especially in Arizona. And uh, I can remember being in Washington County, Pennsylvania, and the, um, the moderator or the past moderator of the denomination showed up. And I hate to say this, he was my distant cousin. Uh, he didn't know we were cousins. Uh, which was probably best, because we got into quite a loud discussion uh, over this issue um, because they were, they were, he was for it, the, just taking in anybody who could come illegally, hiding them in the church, and he associated that with Numbers 35. Okay, and we're going to look at Numbers 35, and what does it mean to be a city of refuge or a sanctuary city? Now, I'm not trying to be political in, in any of this, this issues. You, you make your own decisions about these things. I'm just trying to give us a correct understanding of a biblical concept that I think has been misappropriated by society for their own purposes. So if you want to turn over to Numbers 35, very briefly, we'll just, I'll just give you an outline of this. I won't read the whole chapter. There were 48 cities in the Mosaic Law that were set aside for the Levites. Now, the Levites were the priestly group. 
and they didn't have any property, like everybody else, every other tribe got some land. They didn't have any land, but they did get these cities where they could live and, and were called the, the Levite cities, 48 of them, and six of them were appointed to be cities of refuge, which is a particular uh, has a particular definition here in Scripture. Uh, chapter 35, uh, look at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that a manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. So these cities were for, and, and then the rest of the chapter lays out the particulars of that, and you can review that at a later time. Uh, the Old Testament lays out these cities for those who have uh, um, committed manslaughter, what, what we would term manslaughter today. That would be an unintentional killing, either by accident uh, or uh, some other way that it happened. This is opposed to murder, which would be an intentional killing, uh, whether it's premeditated or in the heat of passion. Okay? Uh, th that would be an intentional killing. So these laws related to manslaughter and are really are designed to promote the sanctity of life. That's what these laws are about here, and, and, and the purity of the land of Israel. Now remember, man was created in the image and likeness of our Heavenly Father. So to destroy that image and likeness is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. So verses 9 through 15 lay out the cities of, of refuge and that they're going to provide for those who have taken their life unintentionally. Uh, but the danger to them is that the family of the one that they have killed will then hold a vendetta, will hold a vendetta, they'll hold a grudge, and want to come after him, even though it was an accident, even though it was unintentional. Uh, so they created these cities so someone who accidentally killed another person could flee to that city and find protection there. So, um, you know... Um, Bo, Bo kills my brother. Well, you know, it's just an accident. So I get all worked up and heated up in my hot Mideastern blood, and I go chase him down, and he's found sanctuary in one of those cities. I can't go in there and do anything to him. I can't. As long as he's within the city walls, he is safe. Now, if he comes out, he's mine. Okay, he's mine. But, but, but as long as he's in those city walls, he is okay. Now, imagine... If that were applied today in our world, um, you, you, you're driving down the car, you're driving down 565, and you have a flat tire, and you swerve, and you go across the lane, and you hit somebody else in the other lane, and they die, and you survive. Now, as tragic as that accident was, it wasn't your fault, but to protect you from the vendetta of the other person, you would be, in a sense, at a sanctuary or refuge city for an undisclosed amount of time, almost in exile. So imagine a teenager who does that, and suddenly they're removed from their family for the next 10 or 15 years. There's punishment there in the sense of being exiled, but they're not, their life is not threatened. That was the nature of a, a uh, sanctuary or city of refuge. And, and really, these cities were designed to break the cycle of sin in the covenant people. Uh, these vendettas were, were kind of common. And in the Near East, in the, and even in the Middle East today, accidental killings, may, 
that vendetta may go on for generations, okay, for generations. It's the Middle East version of the Hatfields and the McCoys, okay? So by establishing these cities, God said, enough with this vendetta stuff. Enough with this. If you're the covenant people, you're going to live according to the laws of the kingdom, not according to the hot blood of somebody else who's worked up and who wants to go kill somebody before they've even had a trial. Okay? So such is the nature of biblical cities of refuge or sanctuary cities. Modern-day versions of sanctuary cities, where uh, uh, this just comes from what they say, is where we won't arrest illegal aliens for being here illegally. We won't help the federal government if they commit a crime. We won't report them. That does not fit into the biblical model of cities of refuge. I mean, there's compassion in things, but you can't claim that that's biblical because it is a completely different aspect. Okay, so that's the first one. And I said I dealt with that because it's kind of been thrust upon us by society, and they're taking, they're taking, our, under, they're taking our language and changing it to fit their desires. All right, now, what does it mean to find refuge in our Heavenly Father? Turn back to Psalm 7. So the second aspect of this is that the innocent should have no fear of turning to God for refuge. If you're guilty and you turn to God and demand justice, well, he just might give you justice upon your head. Okay, But if you're innocent, like David is, he says, hey, Lord, if I've done this, if there's injustice in my hands, if I've rewarded evil to my friend, he said, let him trample my life to the ground. So David is pleading his innocence and and. David, it, this is never, it never comes to fruition. We never understand the full picture here, but we understand enough that David is innocent of what the slander and lies that are being put upon him by this person who's only identified as Cush, a Benjamite, or Benjaminite, a Benjaminite. Now, uh, remember that David took the throne after Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And it wasn't as if David kicked him out. Remember, David had several opportunities to take Saul's life, but he didn't do that. Remember the one time he cut a piece of cloth off his coat and held it up at him later and said, I could have killed you, but I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And it was actually the Lord who finally ended Saul's reign, but David had been anointed and then for what, 17 years he had to wait until he took the throne. But he never raised his hand against Saul. But that doesn't mean that there might not have been a grudge from those in the tribe of Benjamin against David. So we can understand that, that uh, you know, maybe, maybe Cush is, is a leftover from Saul's uh, administration and he's in there causing trouble in David's life. Uh, we don't know, but he's, he's bringing falsehoods and lies against David and his character. And if David is the king, God's anointed, to bring a falsehood against the king is to bring a falsehood against God. So this is doubly bad here. Um, we see later in David's reign when he had to flee from Jerusalem during the Absalom's rebellion, his son's rebellion, that Shimei, the Benjaminite, curses him. And causes trouble in his life. And then a little bit later when he comes back, um, it is Sheba, another Benjaminite, 
curses David and causes trouble. So I'm thinking there are some hard feelings out of the tribe of Benjamin about David's reign. What we do know here, we don't know the specifics, but what we do know is that David has been falsely attacked. Uh, Look at verse 14 of chapter 7. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. So whatever the falsehood was, odds are it was about David's character, or maybe he's making stuff up, uh, he is bringing this out in public. And he was saying things that were untrue, accusing David in ways that were a threat to, the, to his character, threat to his reputation, therefore the reputation of God and the nation as a whole. David says, verse 1, My God, in thee I have taken refuge. So right from the beginning of the psalm, this is, not, this is not a theoretical psalm. This is not one of those things that we, you know, okay, this gives us an overarching picture of God and what he does. This is David living out his faith in a practical way. We're going to try our best to try to figure out what refuge means, but he, it's not as if he goes around and finds a bunch of his guys and gets them around there for protection. He goes to the Lord for refuge. This is the, uh, in a sense, the reality of our, our world here and, and David's world is pushing us into the practical living out of our Christian faith. Do we believe that God is strong? Do we believe that he is all-powerful? Do we believe that he knows everything? Do we believe that he is sovereign over everything and every creature in this world? And if we do, then we will live like it. And David lives like it. Hey, Lord, I'm being accused falsely. I'm coming to you. He doesn't go and beat the stuffing out of Cush. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, if there's anything that's, that, that I'm guilty of, okay, then I'll, I'll bear that guilt. But I'm innocent in this instance. I'm innocent in this instance. So David goes to the presence of God and says, God, right here, you're my refuge. I'm not going to trust in man. I'm going to trust only in you. And David is innocent here. We've read that passage before. So, but Spurgeon reminds us here, and, and there's a great line. I'll highlight it when we get to it. Spurgeon says, from these verses, we may learn that no innocence can shield a man from the slanders of the wicked. After, remember, just because you're a believer and you're living righteous does not mean that a non-believer will not slander you does not mean that if it serves their purpose, they will not bring a charge against you, whether it has validity or not. David had been scrupulously careful to avoid any appearance of rebellion against Saul. And here's the line, It is only at the tree laden with fruit that men throw stones. It is only at the tree laden with fruit that men throw stones. When was the last time the world threw a stone at you? I thought about that, and, and uh, I must not have that much fruit going on because I've been hit with a stone lately. Sinners will have an ill will toward saints, and therefore be sure that if it serves their purposes, they will not speak well of us. Even though our life, like the life of David, our life might be beyond reproach here, without blame, that does not stop the non-believer from slandering us if it serves their purpose. If they're going to make progress, if they're going to be elevated in their mind by decreasing us, that is what they will do. Now, there are plenty of psalms, and and this is just a couple psalms, 14, 15, 16 as an example, where the accuser 
when he accuses someone falsely, is actually, like we said, he's digging the pit and he falls into it. He's bringing guilt upon himself by these accusations. Okay, is the more he accuses, what, me... We, uh, methinks thou dost protest too much or something like that, okay? The more he accuses, the deeper in trouble that he gets. And that's what is going on here. David spared life, Saul's life, on several occasions, so he's without, you know, you can't accuse him here. Um, um, so, uh, you know, what happens is, as he accuses David, he is announcing his guilt. There's a story about Charlemagne, the uh, the. The, the French guy who, who conquered and, and fought against the Moors and, and the uh, Muslims at that time. And in one city that he had conquered, he, he built this church, and we wanted to have this great big bell put in the tower. Okay, At that time, that was quite an undertaking to happen. So he had this artist named Tanko to make the bell. And, and he said, Tanko, what do you need? And he said, well, I'm going to need a, a certain amount of copper. I'm going to need 100 pounds of silver so he can cast the bell. And it turns out that Tanko kept the silver for his own use, imagine that, and substituted in its place a purified tin. Now, a purified tin would, would work, but it wasn't going to work for long. Okay? And you couldn't, if you walked in while he was casting, you couldn't be able to tell the difference between silver and purified tin. So when the work was completed, he gave the bell to the emperor, and uh, the emperor put it up in the church tower, and they tried to ring the bell and weren't having any success in ringing the bell, so they brought Tanko in and, and said, would you ring the bell? So there he was. He, he yanked on the, the, the rope to ring the bell, and the bell broke, and a big chunk fell down and killed him. <laughs> Payback. Okay, that's bad. <laughs> so, his trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing will come down on his crown. The psalm is in the center that we're not really going to deal with is full of a reminder that God is the one who wields the sword of justice. And, and he has this sword. And sometimes he doesn't wield it in, according to our schedule. But he is the one who wields it. And he, there are plenty of instances where he brings justice down upon the unrighteous in a fiery and terrible fashion. Now, you know, in the past, preachers have kind of, you know, when I passed, we might go back 100 or 150 years, and preachers, we kind of focused on that, okay? We, I wasn't around. Um, but, you know, it was the justice of God, and, and we tried to scare people into the kingdom. And, and, you know, they had the mourner's bench or the shaker's bench where if you were feeling the, the fright of the Lord, you'd come up and sit and shake and be concerned for your soul. And we'd scare people into heaven that way. Well, we don't typically do that anymore. We, unfortunately, we've swung the pendulum the other way, and it's just all grace and love. And, and, but you can't understand grace unless you understand that there is justice and the Lord is a vengeful God upon those who are unrighteous. If you understand that, and if you understand that there's punishment for sin, then you can grasp the wonderfulness of God's grace. Then you can understand it. So we can find refuge in the Lord. And I, I wanted to give us some concrete things about finding refuge in the Lord. I mean, sometimes in our hearts we can understand, yeah, I can go to the Lord and pour my heart out to him and, and he gives me comfort, but that's not always a, a tangible thing. 
And it says, you know, come to me, believer, and you'll find rest in me. Scripture is full of examples of those who were in trouble or in trials and tribulations and found safety in the Lord. But refuge is defined by humans in a variety of ways. If I define it as safety and security, that means the people who are lobbing character bombs at me will be unable to do so anymore. They will not besmirch my character or slander me or tear down my family. Refuge might be defined as removal from an immediate persecution or slander. Refuge may be the destruction of the one persecuting us. Maybe that's refuge. Refuge may simply be the stoppage of that persecution. Refuge may be the return of our good name after we've been slandered. And all those are kind of human definitions that I I tried to figure out because that's a normal human desire. I mean, if it hurts, if I'm being attacked, I want it to stop. You know, I want a pill to make the pain go away. I want a court writ to keep my enemy from coming within, you know, 200 yards of me. That's what I want. But it's not always the Lord's will to protect us in that fashion. He says, I'll always be there with you, but he may not protect us and give us refuge in the way that we think he should. Because the world isn't always fair. I just think of uh, Luke 18 and the widow who goes to the judge, the unjust judge, and she's crying out for justice, and he's not even listening to her. Now, the reason he's not listening to her is she didn't have anything to bribe him with. So that's an unjust judge, okay? An unjust judge. Eventually, through her persistence, he does listen to her. But sometimes we still don't get listened to. Sometimes we don't get justice in the world. Sometimes the world beats on us. That's mean the Lord isn't caring for us and protecting us, but that doesn't guarantee that we will not face those things in our lives. So how am I to understand it when I go to the Lord for refuge and I don't get the type of refuge that I want? I don't feel the protection of God upon me. I don't experience the justice that I long for, or I don't find relief from the slander of my character. If you're in Psalm 7, turn back about five pages to Job 38. The men's Bible study on Wednesday has been studying Job. There's a lot in Job. And for 37 chapters, pretty much, Job and his friends have been asking questions and not getting any real answers. And the Lord has been silent. I mean, in the first chapter or two, we hear from the Lord, but then there's this long silence from the Lord. And they wrestle back and forth. And his friends say, Job, if you just confess your sin, your suffering would go away. And Job says, I'm righteous. And then the the fourth friend, the young one who's been silent for, for 36 chapters goes, well, maybe you're not as righteous as you think, Job. Maybe you ought to examine your heart a little bit better. I mean, they've been singing the same song, and obviously it's not making any headway in your life. They've been saying you've got sin in your life, and you've been going, no, no, I don't have it. And so they go back and forth, and Elihu says, but remember, God is sovereign in these things. So he's at least got one good thing to say for Job. But God has not said anything in all this time. Remember, Job has lost his children and his servants and his belongings. 
He sits there on the ground with these boils, the ugly boil. Now, I've never had a boil, but we had a long discussion about boils on Wednesday uh, for the study. We have lunch right after. Um, so, so, you know, and he sits there with a piece of broken pottery, and he scrapes the boils off his arms. I mean, they didn't have penicillin back then or anything like that. And it's just, it's just gross. And, and we don't know how long it goes on, but, but it goes on for quite some time. I mean, they sit there for seven days before they actually say anything, and they start to talk. But God does not say anything. And Job is crying out to God, and he's asking God, and he's saying, Lord, what are you doing? Here I am, righteous. Why am, are these things happening to me, Lord? And then finally, Job chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ooh, Job, you really don't know what you're talking about. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and let's see if you can instruct me. And he asks them a series of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who shut in the sea with a door where it burst out from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hail that I have stashed away to fall upon the earth? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? And what's Job's answer? Nope. Job doesn't actually answer. He just, what, what could you say? The Lord comes and says these things and asks you these questions and says, okay, Job, instruct me. Job has, has no words for him. But not once does the Lord answer Job's question. <laughs> Okay, Lord, I'm suffering here unjustly. What are you going to do about it? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Were you there when I told the sea, you can only go this far and you can't go any further? Have you seen the amount of snow that I have stashed up in the heavens to fall upon the earth? Do you know that I named each star and placed it in the heavens just where I wanted it? That's the God in whom we take refuge. That's the God who is powerful enough to do all of those things. He says, come to me and you will find rest. He says, I am God and you are not. Sometimes we get all worked up over things that we think we've got to have and God reminds us, I am a lot bigger than you thought I was and you are a lot smaller than you thought you were. So when we go to the Lord and we don't think we're getting what we should and we demand an answer, Lord, I, 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 want, I want to find my safety and security in you, be ready for the answer that the Lord may have for you. You are safe, even in the midst of your struggle, even in the midst of your trial, even when those around you are slandering you and attempting to destroy you, you are still safe in my hand. Let's pray. Lord, what a great passage for us today. That it is in you that we can find refuge. We do not have to look to the things of this world. And, and refuge in you is not a guarantee that we will not suffer. It is a guarantee that you 
will hold us in your hand. You will provide for us all that we need, for you are God and we are not. You hold all power and all authority over everything in the universe. Surely we can find rest in you. Lord, today for those who have come looking for that, might their hearts be enlivened and their eyes open to the fact of your care for them, the fact of your love and security, that they can find a peace that passes all understanding in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.